0: Well, if you will remain standing, we now come to the third in our series through this book of Malachi, and it's the third disputation, it's called. We're moving now from this indictment that Malachi has against the leaders to now the whole nation. And, and uh, let me just acknowledge, this, Malachi is a heavy book. <laughs> and so I, I know that's the case. I feel that along with you. And so... Um, as we go through his word, we want to be faithful to what he is saying, but we also want to acknowledge when some things that he says in his word are, are difficult. And, and in this passage, uh, there's, it's, it's the same. It is no different. So if you could turn to the book of Malachi uh, chapter two, or look on the screens here. We're going to be starting in verse 10, going through verse 16, Malachi 2.10 Hear the word of the Lord for us today. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it from your, with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is God's word. Let's, uh, you may sit down and let's pray and ask the Lord to reveal himself to us as we come to understand his word. Father in heaven, we do want to hear from you today. We ask by the power of your spirit, you would give us ears to hear, that your word would penetrate to the core of our being. So give us open hearts, give us hearts ready to receive from you, hearts ready to respond to you. And we pray that in the name and authority of your son, Jesus, amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever heard someone say when they when they're confronted with some difficult realities about who God is, about his attributes, about his character. If someone's ever, if you've heard someone say, "Well, I don't serve a God like that." Or "My God isn't like that." I wonder if you've ever heard that kind of phraseology. You see, if we're not careful, we can gradually drift into believing realities about God that are not true. We can gradually drift into create some sort of God in our own mind that does not exist. He's not revealed in that way in his authoritative word, but in our minds, that's who he is. And in our world today, it's easy to question God in this area of marriage and divorce and sexuality. It's easy to think, well, I know what's best. My God would not do something like that. He would not say something like that. Because we're living in an environment where our culture's standards often prevail against God's standards. Unfortunately, even in the church, this can happen. Well, the same thing was true in Malachi's day. When Malachi prophesied, God's people were being influenced by the cultural forces around them. And it affected how they were worshiping God. And how they were worshiping God, which was half-hearted, which was not according to the standard set in his word, led them to practices that were not commended by God. And in fact, were expressly prohibited by God. So as we look at Malachi 2 today, I believe that God wants us to realign our perspective. He wants us to get in right relationship with who God is and who we are. And as as we do that, we see this big picture coming from our passage uh, you you've heard the word faithless a bunch of times if you were paying attention as I read that out and the big picture coming from this passage is really two words the the call to us today if you're only going to remember one thing about the message you can remember these two words and try to figure out what I said it's these two words guard faithfulness guard faithfulness the passage here is structured around two, God, two major indictments that God has against his people. They're found in verses 10 to 12 and 13 to 16. In each one of those sections, we get a way that we can guard faithfulness to God. So first, guard faithfulness by living out of your identity. That's in verses 10 to 12. And second, guard faithfulness by upholding Christian marriage. That's in verses 13 to 16. So let's first consider, how how can we guard faithfulness by living out of our identity? Well, if you look there at verse 10, before God points out their sinful behavior, here again, God reminds his people of their identity right up front. He says this, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? What's Malachi doing here? It's it's as if he's saying, hey guys, go read chapter one again. Did, Did you not read chapter one? Remember when I told you that God loves you? He wants them to remember that God loves them. It's evident because he's chosen them as a nation. He's created them as a people. He's initiated a covenant relationship with them. He is their father, and they are his children And since he's their father, in the passage that we heard from Jared last week, he expects honor. He expects them to honor him. And Malachi wants them to remember here their primary identity. Their primary identity is that they belong to God. In a similar way, if we want to guard faithfulness today, if we are Christians, if we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, We need to start by remembering our identity in Jesus. You see, if you have submitted your life to Jesus, you you are no longer your own. He has bought you with a price. He has called you to be his representative here on earth. And he wants you to follow his ways with the power that he gives you in his spirit. You see, if we're not clear about our identity in Christ, then we are going to be so vulnerable to attack, uh, attacks and, and temptations and to act in ways that oppose our very identity, just like God's people were back then. So we need to remember our identity. Malachi continues in verse 10, and now he's reminded them of their identity. Now he brings a major indictment against God's people. And it just shows how far out of line with their identity, their behavior has fallen. So look there. He says, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. So here, Malachi puts himself in the indictment. You notice that? He says, we, we have all been faithless to one another. This rampant unfaithfulness of God's people has profaned or defiled the covenant that was given through Moses on Mount Sinai. And Malachi calls it the covenant of our fathers here. They're trampling upon it. They're contaminating it. They're despising it. They're discarding it. They're not even thinking about it. But now Malachi gets a little more specific. He says, you're profaning the covenant of the fathers, and now he says Judah has been faithless. You'll remember Judah was the name of the southern kingdom of Israel. At this time, Israel wasn't uh, the northern kingdom. Israel really wasn't a nation. So he refers to Judah, and in the very same sentence, he refers to Israel as God's peoples, one and the same. <clears throat> and he calls their faithfulness or faithlessness an abomination. What's an abomination? That's a term that is used to describe those despicable acts of the nations surrounding Israel. Things like sorcery, things like child sacrifice. It's the reason why God's people were even brought into the land because God had saw this, the, the people of the land had committed abominations. And so he sent his people in to judge those nations because of these abominations. But now he's saying, you, Judah, you Israel, you're committing an abomination, but it's not just an isolated practice with one or two people. This is a widespread abomination. It's an epidemic, if you will. We know that because Malachi says it's been committed throughout Israel and even in the holy city of Jerusalem. So you can feel now Malachi building the tension. He's saying we've been faithless. Now he's saying, Judah, you've been faithless. You committed an abomination. And you can almost anticipate the people of Judah, the people of Israel saying, "Well, well, Lord, what have we done? What evil have we done? Well, he tells them in the next verse. He says, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. You see, the problem was that God's people were marrying women of other surrounding nations, which in itself wouldn't have been bad, but they were worshiping false gods. These were women who were committed to practices like child sacrifice and sorcery and all sorts of other abominations to God. And if the people married these people, the implication was they would be led astray into these practices and into idolatry. Remember, God called his people to be a holy people, to be set apart, to be his treasured possession throughout all the earth. They were directly disobeying God's words. You remember Deuteronomy 7, it says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. You see, God knew that these women from these foreign nations who worshiped false gods would turn away the people's hearts to idolatry. They would turn their hearts away from God. And so the picture is clear. God's people were not listening to God's word or they were deliberately disobeying God's word. They thought it really wasn't relevant for them in, the, in their age. The scholar Douglas Stewart, uh, commenting on this verse, put it very poignantly. He says this, The Mosaic Covenant was, by Malachi's time, understood as a, a quaint, archaic document, too restrictive to be taken seriously and inapplicable to a modern age, virtually the same way that most people in Western societies view the Bible today. Ouch, that was... It was pointed. God reserves harsh consequences for this kind of blatant, large-scale disobedience. It doesn't matter how common it was. It doesn't matter that everyone was doing it, that it was accepted in that age. Verse 12, Malachi expresses the severe punishment for what they've done. He says it in the form of a prayer, so if you look there, he says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. What is Malachi doing here? He's expressing that if these men want to marry these women who are worshiping false gods and thus adopt the evil practices of the surrounding nation, if they want to go into idolatry like that, then he is asking God to excommunicate them to cut them off from the community, to prohibit them from worshiping God in the temple. It's like a father whose young adult son is consistently breaking the rules of the household. And finally, he says, well, fine, if you want to live under your own rules, under your own terms, you're out of here. You can go and find a new place to live. So God is saying here that those who want to continue in this behavior are not welcome in his presence. We need to pause there and, and we need to think, you know, sometimes it's so easy when we read the Old Testament to just judge Israel, is it not? Like, man, those people. <laughs> I can't believe that. How, how dumb are they? You know, why would they do that? Why would they, didn't they know? Well, when we think that way, I know I've thought that way at times. We really need to put a mirror upon ourselves. We need to realize that every single one of us has broken God's standards. We have broken the standard he has for us. And we have sinned against him knowingly and deliberately. And we have sinned against him unknowingly in, in just our very nature And just like those who are marrying these forbidden women, we deserve to be cut off from God. We deserve that prayer that Malachi had for for us. May they be cut off. Cast away from his presence forever. That is what we deserve. But what a blessing that we have. Here living from the vantage point in this moment in history, when we can look back, when we can learn from the Israelites, when we have seen what God's unfolding plan was leading to over the centuries, that we see that we're no different than Israel, that we deserve that kind of being cut off, but that God, in his mercy, sent Jesus, when we were covenant breakers, we're all covenant breakers, he sent Jesus to be the covenant keeper, to be the one who fully kept the law, And not only that, he kept the law, but he died for you and for me on the cross. And he instituted a new covenant, a new covenant in his blood. So that the law is no longer something we just need to try to figure out. But the law is now written on our very hearts through the power of the spirit. What a wonderful plan of God. And I wonder if you today are trusting in this person, Jesus, this one who has done this work for you. Have you trusted him? Do you trust in him? If not, let today be the day you trust because that is your punishment. If not, that you will be cut off. You will not be given another chance apart from Christ. Well, while we must throw ourselves upon the grace of God and and receive his mercy, as Christians, those of us who have believed, we must not trample upon the grace of God. We must not miss the point of what God is highlighting here. He is highlighting that sin is serious, that repeatedly and purposely sinning against God is always met with heavy consequence even for those of us who follow Jesus. So these warnings for Malachi are very similar to those within the church who kind of disregard God's grace and they are purposely, deliberately sinning without any sense of repentance, without any sense of fight, just thinking, well, God will forgive me. You may remember back in the church of Corinth, some people that thought this way. They were people that claimed the name of Christ and they were habitually living contrary to God's commands. And it was a negatively affecting this entire church community. What was Paul's remedy? Listen, listen to his remedy there in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then he goes on to say, purge the evil person from among you. Friends, we must take this warning in Malachi seriously, this warning that we could be cut off from the Lord because sin when left unchecked will spread among us it will affect the community we must guard against faithlessness and guard faithfulness by first trusting in the Lord Jesus that is apparent we must rest upon his grace But then we must take every measure to fight sin in our own lives with the power that he gives us by his Spirit. And before we move on to verses 13 to 16, verses uh, 10 to 12 has some very practical application for us. First, to those who are not yet married, but maybe someday you would hope to be married this text is a good reminder that God has parameters about who you are allowed to marry, just like he did back then. Likely, you're not going to date someone who practices sorcery or child sacrifice or things like that. I, I sure hope not. But if you are a Christian, let this passage remind you that only he, God's only calling you to pursue potential marriage partners who have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, God wants you to marry another believer so that you can be equally yoked, so that you can run the race of faith together, that you might encourage one another together. It also means that, given our cultural moment, that you must not consider marrying someone of the same gender. It's because God created marriage. and No matter what our culture says, he gets to define the terms which are to be enjoyed between a man and a woman for life. For those of us who are married, let these verses remind us just how serious our marriages are, that how you live out your marriage has massive implications for both your relationship with the Lord, with, for our entire community here at Hope and other in the Christian community, and even for future generations. It's a reminder to guard faithfulness to your spouse. And if you're currently not faithful to your spouse, seek help. Sin is serious. There are are serious consequences for hiding this kind of sin. Well, there may be some who are here who are unbelievers. You're just checking out church. You might be married to an unbeliever. Well, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus, don't, don't hear this as kind of like a Got to go do this. Hear this is, you got to go trust someone. And that's the, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your call. But if you are married to an unbeliever, your call is to be faithful, to persevere, that perhaps your spouse might be won over by your godly conduct and come to saving faith. Well, as we're seeking to guard faithfulness, we must here first remember our identity, that we are God's that he gets to define how we should live. And as we live out of that identity, it will keep us from unfaithfulness. So now in verses 13 to 16, we come to the second way that we can guard faithfulness to God, and that's by upholding Christian marriage. It's really easy, is it not, to put life in compartments. We think about our life at work. We think about our social life. We think about our family life. And we have all these different compartments. Well, God does not see our life in that way. God sees our entire life. There's, There's no such distinction. And in verse 13, it's evident that God's people did not understand this concept. So Malachi says, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering, or accepts it with favor from your hand. You see, apparently God's people knew that God was not responding to them. He was not responding favorable. It's probably, if you read ahead to chapter three, because their crops were pest-ridden and they were failing to produce enough. So that they could live. So they were crying out to God. They're saying, God, why are you not responding to us? And they were weeping. And they had tears and they were groaning. And at first glance, this all looks very pious. It looks very spiritual. Like they might be repenting before the Lord, that they might be sorry for what they had done, but that is not the case. Instead, they are frustrated that God's blessing has not come to them in the form of material prosperity. And in an attempt to manipulate God, they're actually copying these practices of the pagan nations around them. If you remember in uh, 1 Kings 18, Elijah, when they were on Mount Carmel, that's what the prophets of Baal were doing. They were slashing themselves. They were crying out to God. And this is what God's people are doing. They're adopting these kind of practices Thinking that they could arouse a response from God through their exuberant emotion. And I wonder this morning if you are frustrated with God, because it seems like He has not answered some of your prayers. This verse shows us that emotional displays do not fool God, it shows us that God hears our entire lives. He doesn't just hear our prayers. He hears our life, that our worship is affected by our actions. The horizontal affects the vertical. What did Peter say in 1 Peter 3, 7? He said, uh, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, lest your prayers be hindered. The vertical or the horizontal is affected by the vertical. Now, it doesn't mean that God is waiting for you to, get your life perfect before he answers your prayers. There's many reasons why prayers go unanswered. It may not align with the will of God as revealed in his word, or it may not be part of his good plan for your life, or there may be not the right timing for those prayers to be answered. There's many reasons why prayers are not answered. But you can be assured of this. God will not and is not fooled, he will not be fooled, if you are deliberately living in sin in one area of your life. And you're covering it up, and you're pretending that everything's okay, and then you're coming to church and you're coming to Him in prayer, and you're not acknowledging it before Him. You're hiding it. God is not fooled. So, the big idea in verse 13 is that God cannot be manipulated, He's a witness to all of our lives. That's going to become evident here, starting in verse 14. So look there with me. Malachi begins that verse by asking this question that was on their minds. But you say, why does he not? Why does he not regard our offerings? Here's the Lord's response. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Well, here God reveals the reason that he's not uh, responding to their worship. It's because of unrepentant sin in their lives, specifically because of their unfaithfulness within their marriages. What did this unfaithfulness look like? It, well, it looked like marrying these foreign women who were worshiping false gods. That's in verse 11. But it also looked like divorcing the wives of their youth. As you look forward, it will be made explicit in verse 16. We gotta remember that at this time, the process of marriage looked a lot different than it does today. There wasn't kind of this like dating and et cetera and love. It was... Uh, it was more like a father telling a son who he's going to marry when he was a teenager. So it literally was the wife of your youth. This was an arranged marriage at this time, a marriage in the teenage years. But they were legitimate marriages in the sight of God. You, you might have could imagine like the people are like, well, that's not a real marriage. My, my dad arranged that for me and I'm going to marry this other person for love. For, for wealth, for, for other reasons. But this was a legitimate marriage in the sight of God. And though the process of choosing a marriage partner is very different today, we still can learn from God and his wisdom uh, truths about marriage. There's, there's five truths here, very quickly, that, that I'm going to talk about. First, we learn that God is a witness in marriage. That means that, yes, he sees and affirms the vows that you made to your wife on your wedding day. It does mean that. He was there. But it also means that he sees what happens. He's a witness to every day of your marriage. He sees everything. God is a witness. Second, we learn that the wife is a companion to her husband, or it could be translated here, a marriage partner. This is Radical language in Old Testament times when women were treated as inferior to men. So, in God's eyes, women are not inferior to men. So, hear that, men, hear that, women. Women are not inferior. They are co equals with you, they are partners, they are companions. Yes, there are different roles, but they are co equals. Third, we learn that marriage is a covenant. It's an exclusive relationship. It's with a binding promise of love and trust between a man and a woman that God seals together. It's this image of like building material that is forged together that cannot be torn apart. That's the image in a a covenant. And contrary to our culture's narrative, God says that a marriage covenant can only be broken by death. Or as we go into the New Testament, some uh, kind of uh, breaking of the covenant through sexual immorality or through desertion. But it's serious, it's permanent, it's binding, it's lifelong. Fourth, we learn that marriage, in marriage, God blends two lives together and makes them one. We see that at the beginning of verse 15, which, by the way, is the hardest verse in the Old Testament to translate, according to all scholars. And uh, so I want to be careful in, in determining a meaning of this <laughs> and tread lightly. But in verse f- 15, when it says that God made them one, Malachi is likely referring back to Genesis 2:24. "Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God has made them one." And God makes uh, marriage partners one in all marriages, and fifth, we learned that god, one of god 's desires for marriage is to reproduce godly children for the next generation that 's what we were celebrating earlier today. We were celebrating. Two parents who love the Lord Jesus, who are saying, yes, we're gonna raise our kids as godly offspring. We Don't, don't call your kids offspring, by the way. You, you know, call them children or something. <laughs> but godly offspring, that they might uh, come to know and love the Lord Jesus. That was a great picture of that today. But in Malachi, these people's sinful actions were disrupting this purpose of God's in marriage. And now, when we think about marriage, big picture, from our vantage point in redemptive history, God has made it very clear that marriage is a picture, a living picture of the gospel. And so, Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians 5. And so, if in divorce, in a Christian divorce, what is that saying about the gospel? When, when a husband divorces his wife for no good reason, it shatters this picture of the gospel. It mars one of God's main purposes for marriage, which is to show the gospel to an unbelieving world. Well, here in Malachi, God's people are in trouble. They have sinned against God. They have negatively impacted their entire community. This sin has spread. It's an epidemic and God's judgment is coming. And it's because of their marriages that they've been unfaithful to, that they've married these forbidden women, and it's because of their divorces that were not lawful. It was desperate. It was a desperate situation. But friends, today in the Christian community, it isn't much less desperate what's going on within marriage and divorce in the Christian world. I'm not saying at hope, but just in general. And so we need to listen up to the final exhortation in these verses, starting in verse 15. It says, So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Well, what is Malachi doing here? He's giving this sandwich of commands, a, a command on the top and a command on the bottom. He's saying, do not be faithless. He's, he's, uh, he's giving this, this rationale, guard yourselves in your spirit, do not be faithless. And then he's wanting, it's a rhetorical device to get us to hone in on that middle part. Unfortunately, that middle part is uh, a really challenging verse in, in the original language. But, but as we hone in on it, verse 16, some of your versions will say, I hate divorce, says the Lord. If you have the old NIV or the NASB, it will say, I hate divorce. That's because the translation is, um, could go either way. If you have the ESV, many modern versions, it will say the man who hates and divorces or the man who does not love his wife or divorces. So which is it? Uh, I think both are very plausible readings, and I think both are true. And so I'm not going to tell you which one it is, because I don't know. But God does hate divorce. And for the man who hates and divorces, there is uh, this, this uh, extreme consequence. He, the text says he covers his garment with violence. It's a very difficult phrase to interpret, but Joyce Baldwin in her commentary says it's a figurative term for all kinds of gross injustice. Douglas Stewart says it's an idiom that means he's got blood on his hands. Well, so what's the point here? The point is that God is equating these unlawful divorces with major injustice, on par with murder, on par with child uh, abuse and things like that. That's not the way that we view divorce in today's society, but it's the way God views it. And that's why these commands to guard your spirit, to not be faithless are repeated so that we may not fall into the same situation. Unless we think that, well, that's the Old Testament. You know, God's kind of harsh back then. Jesus, in the gospel, he affirms that divorce is not God's ideal. He does allow for divorce when the other spouse is guilty of sexual immorality. We see that in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and God through Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 allows for desertion of an unbelieving spouse. There are acceptable reasons for divorce, although God never says you must do it in that case. But God still hates divorce in the New Testament world as well. But we do need to pause here near the end of the message and acknowledge the hardness of these verses. We need to acknowledge that there probably most, if not all of us, have been affected by divorce in some way. Maybe you have been divorced yourself, and you know the pain and the tearing that comes from that. Or you're the child of someone who divorced, And you know the pain that comes from that. Or your friends have divorced or family members and you have seen it destroy families and communities. So we need to acknowledge the pain here. Even with God's high commands, we need to know that people are hurting and you are probably hurting on some level because of this issue. So if you have witnessed divorce up close through your own family or in your own life or with friends, I just want you to remember that God sees you, that God knows you. He knows the whole situation and he is the God of all comfort. He wants to comfort you in the midst of the pain and the ongoing pain that is that reality. If you are divorced and it's because your former uh, spouse cheated on you, be reminded today that the Lord will never abandon you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And if you've been divorced and it's because of something you've done or it's because of a reason not allowed by God, remember that there is grace to those who are repentant. Yes, you have committed a sin, but it is not the unforgivable sin. And godly repentance means we're gonna repent before God and then we need to consider who needs to have reconciliation or uh, remediation or whatever needs to be done on a horizontal level. So if that's you, the call is to repent and receive God's grace and then seek forgiveness where you can. Well, for all of us who know Jesus, These commands in verse 15 and 16 are for us. These commands, guard your spirit. Or it could be, guard your life and do not be faithless. Just really quickly, let's think about what that is. Guard your spirit. How can we guard our spirit or guard our life? Three ways. First, guard your eyes. Men, women, what what are you looking at? What are you looking at online? What are you looking at In this world, guard your eyes. Second, guard your mind. What's going on, men and women, between your ears? What are you thinking about women, men? Remember that Jesus said if you even lust after a woman, it's like committing adultery with her. So guard your mind and then guard your feet. Where are you going? Uh, What are you doing late at night? Where are are your feet going? When you're traveling for work, what are you doing? Guard your feet. So guard your spirit or life. Second, do not be faithless, or in the positive, be faithful to your spouse, it says, or just in general, it just says, don't be faithless, it says at the end. How can we do that? First, by following the faithful one. There is one who is faithful. There is one who has never failed, and it's the Lord Jesus. So we need to follow the faithful one with the strength that he gives. Second, act upon God's word. See, in Malachi's time, they had forgotten God's word. They had kind of said, well, everyone's doing this. It doesn't matter. And we do the same thing. So act upon God's word. And then finally, call on others to keep you accountable. Friends, we need all of us to be faithful. We need one another. This is a call to a community, a church community. We don't want sin to spread throughout this community. So be accountable to others. Call somebody up, have them for coffee. Try to confess sin to others. Be accountable to others. So as we close... Today, I want you to ask God to remind you of his faithfulness to you. He is the faithful one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you follow him, you have great hope. You have great freedom to walk in his ways. Ask him to remind you of your identity and to show you where you're not living in line with that identity right now. And let us stand in awe of the God that we serve. He gets to define our reality. He gets to define who he is. We don't get to define who God is. We serve the faithful one, the gracious one. So let's serve him in the strength that he provides. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are so gracious to us. And texts like this are hard. They're difficult because so many of us have been affected by unfaithfulness in marriage maybe we've been unfaithful there we've been affected by divorce we see that uh, what we think about you and our identity does affect our actions and Lord we we need you we need your grace we need help within our community we need help to see life as you have defined it so Lord come in your power now convict our hearts, and give us uh, assurance of your love and grace. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.